0: What a great pleasure it is to be here, first of all, to express my deep gratitude to uh, the President of Senegal and Chairman of the African Union, President Saar, for the inspiration he is giving by organising this, and I want to uh, very much uh, thank uh, Dr. Edesina for his kind invitation uh, to this significant conference. We had a wonderful meeting in Dublin last year where we discussed the importance of Africa and the world. So I do repeat my deep gratitude to His Excellency, the President of the Republic of Senegal and Chairman of the African Union, President Macky Sall, And all of those who have spoken and President Sall's inspiring, thought-provoking address and what we have just heard a call for action for Africa, excellencies, Prime Ministers, Ministers, distinguished guests, all protocols observed. I was honoured to receive an invitation to be here with you at ACA at the High Level Summit uh, on voting. It is a topic of such importance and one which carries emancipatory potential for the people of Africa and I so pay tribute to all those who have attended and those who are going on most importantly to support its actions. It is my first time to visit this great country, the country of the post and cultural theorist Leopold Singer, first, <clears throat> first President of independent Senegal from 1960 to 1980 and rightly regarded as one of the most important African intellectuals of the 20th century. It was Singer who remarked, Africa is not an idea, it is a knot of realities. These are such realities, I believe, as can be shaped so that we may not only for Africans but all of humanity achieve sustainable and inclusive models of living cooperatively together. And I speak to you today out of a sense of seeking hope, a hope born of recognizing the potential of a continent on which the prospects of so much of our shared future rests. Today, is Africa is the continent of the young, accounting for 20% of the young people of the world, a continent of over 1.4 billion people, constituting 17% of the world's human population it is from africa that we all came and it is from africa and <clears throat> and it is from africa that the most and the most populated continents that the most authentic expression of a new model of existence can come I believe may come, and it will, a new model of balanced social, economic, and ecological practice that can connect with the diversity of people and circumstances as necessary. Adjusting what has failed, I suggest, is not an alternative, and the assumptions of what has failed must at least be critiqued if space is to be made for the alternatives we need. When I last spoke to the United Nations Commission for Africa in 2014, I did so having just viewed Australopithecus afrancis, also called Dinknesh, the wondrous one in her Ethiopian homeland. Better known to many as Lucy, this female skeleton estimated to have lived 3.2 million years ago. A discovery made by Donald Johnson in 1974, I suggested, symbolised the overdue debunking of the pseudoscience of 19th century European racial anthropologists and white supremacists. It changed forever scientific understanding of our human origins. For <laughs> science and its tools can be and have been misused. In the 19th century, an appalling colonial use and misuse of the valuable tool that anthropology constituted suggested that certain people were inferior, had practices that were at best evidencing backwardness. This, of course, was practiced as a rationalization of empire. That erroneous understanding and domination of cultures that was promoted by such colonialists perhaps explains why the tool of anthropology in later times after independence became somewhat lost because of its associations. And that, I think, was a great pity, because anthropology and field studies, when implied correctly, constitute a tool of utmost value. Today in Africa, there are excellent field works underway on land issues, gender, food security and the balancing of work and food provision being conducted by African researchers in cooperation with scholars, such as Professor William Moseley and Dr. Carmody. I agree with Sanko Mutu in his arguments that there were in the previous Enlightenment some great thinkers such as Diderot and Kant and Herder, who sought to enable that era's anti-imperialists to defend the freedom of non-European peoples to order their own societies. I contend that such arguments could be reinvoked in our current circumstances, so that we may invoke a new and emancipatory spirit of African enlightenment, thinking, one that interweaves commitments to universal moral principles and incommensurable ways of life one that links the concept of a shared human nature with the idea that humans are not only fundamentally diverse, but are capable of cooperation, are capable of agreeing to move on from what are insufficient, even disabling assumptions as to what constitutes just and sustainable forms of international economy. An African enlightenment that will bring into being a new model of connection between ecology, economy and society. Such an intellectual temperament can, now in the twenty first now in this century, broaden our own perspectives about justice, human rights and the relationship between converging shared universal values and diversity. These field studies now underway, if used correctly, can renegotiate the broken contract with nature recognize the vulnerability of women laboring in the fields without security. It can provide valuable insights, be utilized as informing policy, serve as an alternative to some of the dominant international discourse, and not just as it relates to Africa. The findings of the new African field studies have allowed space in the discourse can help retool multilateral institutions as they listen to the voices from the most populated continents. It is from such voices that our best prospects globally will come. Most of all these field studies can re people economics, respectfully hear of essential needs, offer responses that are appropriately respectful of what is received wisdom, what is complex and what is local. And I suggest that as tool and method, these anthropological studies, carried out by African women and men, have the capacity to assist with the necessary transformation of globalisation, the necessary response to climate change, the promotion of sustainable development in an appropriate and inclusive way, enabling the best instincts of sufficiency to be privileged over unrestrained greed. Any appeal to extreme individualism over collective welfare. A new economics is being defined. It is emerging. It is there among the publics, but it is not in the multilateral institutions. It is one that is drawing from evidence empirically, from the base and the experience of society. It is an economics that seeks connection with societies in all their vulnerabilities and capacities through ecological and social movements. I believe that all of this can enable an African contribution to a new enlightenment, one that has so much in common with the best of the socially-based scholarship that is now underway emanating from South America. This new approach in scholarship and ideas It is there in the new work dealing with issues of extensive land purchases, the insecurity of women producers, the incalculable importance of having proper policies in relation to land. A new focus is required, I suggest, for the journey we all must now undertake, one that goes beyond any narrow focus on limited empiricism towards a broader intellectual consideration. And that journey will require that colonising nations of the past be willing to reflect critically on their past actions. It is necessary, as part of a clearing of the ground, to remove the ability of past actions to disable either the present actions that are necessary or future valuable initiatives. It is necessary to renounce old, extractive, imperial models some of which linger on today in the form of excessively capitalised productionist models of agronomy. This is a task, frankly, to which there has been insufficient energy demonstrated by such nations, and everybody loses from such unwillingness. It is my suggestion that we need an African new departure that deals with African realities, such an approach that offers the security that a complete dependency on the international food value chain can never offer. There are specific issues, specific issues that must be addressed now, all of which have consequences for food security in the long term. At the top of our mutual agenda, I humbly suggest, must be securing the positive role of women as landholders and as full participants in decisions in relation to food production, distribution and nutrition. It is on this great continent that we might perhaps see the playing out delivery of the fruition of our efforts at achieving United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, provide an adequate anticipation and response to climate change. In short, I repeat, achieve that vital connection between economy, society, ecology and culture and Mother Nature that we so urgently need and cannot postpone, involving, as it does, the future of the planet itself as a habitable space. The implementation of the outcome of the United Nations COP27, a new global climate pact, requires this new model of connection of which I speak, ecology, economics, social justice. It recognises, too, the importance of climate adaptation, However, we must recognise that for some countries and communities in Africa and elsewhere, adaptation measures may come too late. This points to the critical importance of support for loss and damage, an issue Ireland prioritised in its role as part of the European team, brokering the Agreement on Loss and Damage at COP27. Achieving a recognition of loss and damage as a consequence of the North-South relationship was, in my view, the most significant outcome of COP27. To bring new models that can serve the diversity of our needs in sufficiency in a sustainable way requires a recognition of the flawed assumptions upon which our current model was based. These are assumptions which have a history. From an early emphasis on the subjugation of nature came the imposed hegemonic idea of progress, Followed by modernization theory, evolutionist development theory, such as that outlined and led by the Princeton studies of the 1960s, that would go on to guide the practices of the World Bank. This was an ideological position. It was a heavily empowered project, whose graduates, such as myself, were invited in the 60s in our welcome postgraduate opportunities to study the backwardness of our people and the factors that inhibited their modernity. Orlandefold's borda has written of this in a way which I cannot better. But what a price we have paid for ideologically laden modernisation-influenced development theory with its inherent bias against indigenous practices and local cultural agency. All actions that brought us to this point were undertaken within the prism of what was suggested was a rationality a rationality that Europeans were seen to have originated wrongly or achieved in policy and others perceived as lacking. This movement generated in the social sciences a form of structural functionalism that would be epitomised in the policies and the justifying reports of the World Bank and other multilateral agencies, whose policies, in the limited singularity of their vision, in their disconnect with indigenous culture would have so many disastrous effects on African experience and indeed on our burning planets. Our broken connection with nature, then, is not any accident. It was supported by a body of intellectual work that facilitated an expression of power through colonisation, imperialism, exploitation and domination. This involved rejecting ancient wisdoms Certain ancient methods of crop rotation, other practices of food provision, the enforced embracing of externally imposed market practices were seen as fundamental to the idea of progress in human achievement. I offer this summary to emphasise not only how tragic but how unjust it is that through the exercise of such assumptions and their results, the practices they unleashed, that those who contributed least to the destructive climate change which was the result, are bearing the heaviest burden of its consequences. Nine out of ten of the most climate-vulnerable countries in the entire world are in sub-Saharan Africa. As do emissions of the 20 countries most affected by climate change. Between them, they account for only 0.55% of global emissions. I was in Somalia during the ruinous famine of 1992 and witnessed horrific, preventable scenes of famine and severe malnutrition across the Horn of Africa, a region that has endured devastating hunger three times in three decades. We as a global community have the capacity to anticipate and prevent regional and global famines. We have, however, not face the basic structural issues that influence food insecurity? How how did so many in Africa become so dependent on so few staples, the production, distribution and consumption of which they have over such little control? How did the complex dependencies of global value change develop, and how are they being sustained and how centralised and how many participate in them? It is a remarkable statistic you've heard it. You couldn't say it often enough that despite having two thirds of the remaining arable land, Africa still imports hundred million tons of food at a cost of $75 dollars annually. Yet Africa has the potential to be self sufficient in terms of food production, and indeed, as you have heard, to make a significant contribution to feeding the world. We now need best ecological practices in agriculture, including agroecology, to become widespread, and this is substantially different from mere adjustments to the over-heavily financed production agronomy model, a colonially-imposed food system which has exacerbated food insecurity by creating over dependence on a small number of staples and an over reliance on imported fertilizers, pesticides and seeds coming from a very narrow base. We must acquire a space for the, we must re- acquire a space for the discourse needed to achieve the necessary transformation in policy and practice. It is an achievement we have yet to make. Yes, our current context is challenging. The illegal invasion of Ukraine by Russia has exacerbated an already existing food crisis by its blocking of grain and fertilizer shipments early in the war. Food and fertilizer prices have, as we have heard, increased globally. And of course, remember, just simply seven companies are responsible for 70 to 90 percent of the speculation in the international commodity market in relation to food. This has further endangered an already fragile food security. Yes, a humanitarian response is urgent and needed now, essential, but it is not sufficient. The underlying failures of the structural kind and multilateral institutional kind that are disrupting global food supply must be addressed. The global humanitarian response to which Ireland is so always quick to respond cannot be a mask that serves to cover for the continued neglect of the structural sources of food insecurity. Increasing food production, in an appropriate way for our growing world population, must be undertaken as urgent, but what is crucial are the social structures in which that increase in production and distribution of food is achieved. Yes, it will require increases in productivity and yields, but this surely must be achieved in a fair and transparent set of partnerships. We must respect the seed sovereignty of native practices and indigenous peoples, take cognisance of the consequences of large-scale land and water resources purchases. Such increases in food production must be sustainable even as we continue to lose land to environmental degradation and climate change with horrific attendant loss of biodiversity. Yes, the United Nations Convention to Combat Desertification projects that 700 million people are at risk of displacement by 2050, owing to land degradation. In addition, half of global grain production will be affected by water scarcity. This will create huge competition for resources, To address this, we need to invest in land restoration, environmentally sustainable agricultural practices, and the agreement reached by parties to the United Nations Convention on Biological Diversity before Christmas is hugely important in this regard. In the Global North, we waste a quarter of our food we produce. In developing countries, a similar proportion is lost through storage and transport. How can we regard a structure which delivers results such as these as not fundamentally flawed. We must face up to the difficult questions. Do we have the balance right globally between feeding people and feeding animals to feed people? What about the balance between meat and plant based diets with regard to health, nutrition and climate impacts? How do we find the optimum balance between land used for land for food crops versus land used for biofuel crops? What are the cultural implications of changes in land use? Participation is a core tenet of citizenship and democracy, and it is damaged by dependency. I repeat that we must address how it has come to pass that the people of Africa are so dependent on three food staples and that the food production and distribution model is so deeply flawed. A range of staples high in nutrition can be produced in the regions where they are needed, and end the practice of long, hazardous transport routes and supplier monopolies. Agroecological models show us a path away from dependency and insecurity, towards a decolonised agronomy. We must make concerted efforts to ensure the removal of barriers to diverse agricultural development in Africa, as in, for example, as are offered through agroecology. If Africans are to unlock Africa's potential, Regionally-led initiatives, devised, led and transformingly managed and developed by the countries of the region and supported by appropriate, predictable and sustainable funding, are a key to addressing long-term peace, justice and sustainable living. Some of the initiatives so powerfully expressed in African Union's Agenda 2063 are underway, and we can look at the Great Green Wall and others combating the effects of desertification in North Africa. As I finish, I'm often asked, well then, what would an emancipatory imperialist anthropology look like now in Africa? And I say to them, it's already taking place with African students in the field, and their evidence must be allowed into the discourse, into relation. What are they doing? They're examining the cycles of life. They're examining the basic needs of such cycles, as you have just heard. What are the needs that are there? And that what can be done cooperatively, and the great joy of, celebration, of celebrating successes. This practical fieldwork is crucial to be fed into the decision making policy framework. It celebrates the best of the endogenous, offers a democratic understanding of the exogenous threats, it meets the requirements of adjustment to climate change and sustainability, it offers the very best prospects for avoiding unnecessary conflict and of achieving peace within and between peoples. Its presence and the policy discourse is essential. Let us endeavor together then in our diverse world, beginning again in Africa, seek to build such a cooperative, caring, non exploitative global civilization. Let us make this century our Africa century, one which will see the continent become not only free from hunger, a shared continent in a global family, one based on the firm foundations of respect for each nation's own institutions, traditions, innovations, experiences, and wisdoms, founded on a recognition of the solidarity that binds us together as humans and an acknowledgement of the responsibility we share for our vulnerable planet, for Mother Nature, and the fundamental dignity of all who those dwell in it. Chair